Just so you know, the format of tonight, we, we are talking about activism and Sabbath, and throughout our entire spiritual formation series, we've been trying to view it very holistically. I don't know about you, but in the church that I, I grew up in, we focused pretty much exclusively on in here, which is very, very important. But there's also a real world that we inhabit with very real politics, economics, and social order. And we need to, if we are to be salt of the earth and to be the peacemakers we are called to be, we need to be practicing things out in the world, not just in here, but also out in the world. And so we've been pairing different spiritual disciplines together. And tonight we've paired activism with Sabbath. So uh, what we've asked our four panelists here to do is just answer a simple question. They've got eight to ten minutes to do so. <laughs> and then after, oh, and then after that, uh, we're going to open it up for some questions from you all. So on the table, you'll notice that there are note cards and there should be a few pins. So as our different panelists speak, if you have questions that come up for you, Feel free to write your question down on that note card and just raise it in the air and one of our volunteers will come by and collect it. We will try to get to as many questions as we can, but know that the way we are going to try to approach the question answering phase is by trying to see if there are trends or overall themes that are coming in from the different questions and ask a very broad question. So know that we're not purposely trying to ignore your question if you asked one, but we just want to make sure we're, we're asking the kinds of questions that the vast majority of folks want to hear about, okay? So with that being said, I'm just going to do a quick little intro of our panelists. Over here uh, to the left, we have Reverend Eric Garbison. He is a, a longtime Presbyterian minister, and he is one of the co-founders of Cherith Brook Catholic Worker House. Thank you for coming, Eric. Uh, next up, we have, uh, on, to my right, right here, we have Reverend Dr. Vernon Percy Howard, Jr., and he is the senior pastor at St. Mark's Union Church in, here in Kansas City. He's also the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Greater Kansas City. To Dr. Howard's left is Reverend Nia Chandler. She is the associate pastor of St. Mark's Union Church, special su support staff to SCLC, Greater Kansas City. She's also a communications consultant at Missouri Mid-South Conference of the United Church of Christ. And then... Also on our panel is Reverend Susan McCann. Uh, she is the rector at Grace Episcopal Church in Liberty, Missouri, and she is the president of the Board of Communities Creating Opportunities. So let's give a round of applause to our panel. Seriously, thank you all for being here tonight to join us. It's really fantastic to have you all here. So we're looking at the, the, the two disciplines of Sabbath and activism, and we've asked all of our panelists to reflect on what both of those mean and how they strike a balance to do peace and justice work in the long term. So we're, we're interested in hearing about how we strike that balance between activism and Sabbath. So with that being said, um, I don't know who would like to start. Well, good evening. Again, my name is Reverend Nia Chandler, and as I was introduced, I thought about the, the various roles uh, that I play as Associate Pastor of St. Mark Union Church, but also as a communications consultant at the Missouri Mid-South Conference and ways in which we engage with uh, various network groups that are definitely involved in social activism. 
um, as well as the support uh, role that I play with Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so I want to start with, um, with first by just sharing my way of keeping uh, the Sabbath and making sure that we're holy. Um, and so part of that begins with prayer. Uh, for every day that I wake up, uh, there's a, a prayer a meditation that I say. Um, I say it silently to myself, um, but it, it, it's a way for me to be grounded in how my day is going to start and how my day should finish. And so that to me is more important than anything else that I could do to start my day is to start it off with prayer. Um, oftentimes I will take time to meditate, um, just to center myself, uh, whether that's uh, outside on my patio or um, just sitting up, you know, when I wake up. But it's a time for just me. I want to tell you a little bit about myself before I move into more of how I um, keep the Sabbath holy uh, and, and make sure that I'm honoring it. And so, uh, first and foremost, I am a child of God. I am a single parent raising uh, four children, uh, two that are adult kids, one that's actually in New York that travels the country and graduated from a conservatory arts school, another that's at Howard University studying to be an OBGYN, and then twin girls that are seniors in high school. And so when, when I think about, <laughs> bless you, when I think about, you know, all the things that we juggle in our church life and in my um, consultant life, ultimately I have a responsibility to those four kids that I brought into this world. And the ways in which, uh, because the, the duty of, of social activism can be uh, very taxing, um, and very requiring of you and sometimes without notice that you're called to um, what God has called you and purposed you to do, that they are included in ways uh, where they know exactly what I'm doing. Um, they um, sometimes will agree and sometimes they'll have their own input uh, as to, okay, but are you going to be safe? You know, as any child would want their, their parent to be um, protected and safe. And other times they're actually involved. They've had, a, and not because I've coerced them to, but they have a love and passion for people. And I think that's what's at the heart of activism, that you must have a love for people. And so I want to, uh, I'm always careful to include them uh, in the ways in which I'm serving uh, and, and, you know, being that activist but also in the ways in which I care for myself so that they can embody that same spirit, whether they you know, do it in an activism setting or do it in just everyday life, it's important. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about, um, again, the ways in which I kind of balance that uh, Sabbath and, and activism because it can be very um, taxing. Uh, and so besides prayer and waking up and setting my mind right for the day and meditating, there are ways in which I know, because there's so much coming out at us every single day. We are bombarded with media, with social media, with uh, things that are happening in our community, uh, with things that are happening, quite honestly, in our own homes, um, oftentimes. And so uh, it's important to uh, take care of yourself. And some of the ways I do that outside of prayer would be to read 
Uh, I do a lot of reading. I read scripture, uh, read other uh, books. I've studied uh, various activists. Um, I was going to share with you um, one of the, the great activists, actually, that I have followed, and that is Howard Thurman. And I think back to, and of course, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King is the founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which I provide support uh, in a number of ways, um, too. But it, it was quoted by the um, Dr. Walter L. Flucker. And he's the director of Howard Thurman Papers Project at Morehouse College. And he says, leaders like King do not raise out of a historical vacuum. There are movements and there are personalities who actually sow the seeds. Thurman is one of those persons who sows the seed. And in fact, I don't believe you'd get a Martin Luther King Jr. without a Howard Thurman. And I think that's true. And though Howard Thurman may not have been seen as a you know, on-the-road activist, um, you know, in the streets. There are, th there are people that have come before us that have shaped how we might participate in civil disobedience and how we might continue to grow spiritually as we do that. And certainly Howard Thurman is one of those for me, and certainly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is one of those uh, for me. Um, I also reflected on the ways in which we can show our support of injustice and try to overcome injustice. And while sometimes there is a need for civil disobedience, there are other times where um, singing may be the right thing to do in a situation. Um, prayer may be the right thing to do. And so I think it comes with great discernment as to what the particular situation is, how it might impact uh, the community and ultimately uh, overcoming the injustice. And so I always um, caution people that we don't have to have one way. There may be many of you out there that would never consider being civil uh, disobedient. Um, and I, I was a part of the Medicaid 23, the folks that went to Jefferson City and in the Senate uh, chambers protested and were actually arrested. That may be something that you all would never consider doing. And yet that's okay because I think we're all called to um, do a particular work in overcoming injustice, and while it might not be civil disobedience, it may be praying. We had several people that were outside of those chambers that were praying for us. And when we, uh, after we were arrested, we had folks that were singing as we came out. And so all of that has an impact on how we able to keep on going. Uh, and let, you know, out of um, you know, the grace of God, and having gone through a trial, we were pardoned by the governor. Um, but it, it may not have been that way. It could have been that we were never pardoned and actually you know, have to, to commit to uh, a fine. And I should say some of us uh, accepted that pardon. All of the 23 did not. But we could have you know, paid the fine or we could have ended up in jail. We wouldn't have known that going into it. But again, that may not be what each of us is called to do. And that doesn't take away from what you might do and how you might serve as it relates to overcoming injustices. And so I say that to you to um, keep hopeful. And if you're not quite there yet and you're, wanting, you're determining where you might be best served, be in prayer about it because I think uh, God will lead you to that place that you're supposed to be. 
Um, I want to share a little bit about the ways in which I serve for Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I mentioned I was part of the Medicaid 23, but I want to say in this uh, kind of a wrap-up that leading up to that, there was a lot of organization that had to happen. A uh, lot of meetings, a lot of discussion as to what approach we might take. Uh, and I was not the leader. I'm going to have Dr. Howard maybe speak to that uh, because he led that uh, group. But there was also an administrative piece that I think sometimes may get overlooked uh, because it could not have happened without documentation of what would we do next. And once we got there, down there, what is it that we were saying? And I remember leading up, walking up to the chambers, Dr. Howard had actually asked me to write down uh, what it is that we might chant. And I wrote it on scratch paper as we were leading up there with, with all kinds of thoughts in my mind. But again, there is organization and administrative work that supports the work of activists. And again, I, I, I hope that whatever you're called to do, that you know there's a place for each and every one of us yeah. to show support and to overcome injustice. Thank you. Well, she's handed me the microphone, so I guess I'll, I guess I'll go next. Uh, I'm Reverend Susan McCann, and um, I'm happy to be here with you tonight. It's, it's really been a joy to think about these questions. Uh, I don't take a lot of time to really be reflective about these particular issues that we were asked to address. So that was really a gift, and, and I thank you for that gift. In my tradition, I'm an Episcopal priest. And so in my tradition, our, our day is punctuated by prayer. We have morning prayer, we have noonday prayer, we have evening prayer, and we have a service called Compline, which is the prayer that can be said before we go to bed, often said with one's children, if you happen to be a parent. And so I would say that my life is punctuated by prayer. And certainly the, the practice of being faithful at worship is what most sustains my relationship with God and my ability to trust that Jesus is not going to call me in places that he doesn't give me the strength to go to. Um, in, uh, so I believe that my life, my, my spiritual life, is undergirded by regular worship. In our tradition, communion or sharing in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is central to our worship. And for me, we, we come to worship, we gather, we pray together, we listen to the word of God. Why? To go out and be God's church in the world. Uh, so for me, that's crucially important. I'm probably the oldest one sitting up here, and, and I've had a long journey. Uh, my activism started, really, I think it's part of my DNA. Growing up with my mother's family, who were from a very small town in southern Georgia, and spending early days there and witnessing sights that I didn't understand as a young child. Hearing words and seeing pictures that made absolutely no sense to me, that did not square with what my Sunday school teachers were teaching me. 
And so for, from the time I was a little child, racial injustice has been what has motivated me. And my relationship with Jesus Christ is what calls me into the streets to exercise that, that faith and knowing that we've got to make a difference. I think that one of the uh, verses of scripture that most speaks to me is the 10th chapter of John where Jesus says, I came to bring life and to bring life in all of its abundance or all of its fullness. And from the time I was a child to the newspapers that we read today, we know that many people are not experiencing life in all of its fullness. And we as the church, we are the church, we are the body of Christ. If we're not speaking up, standing up, and working in the streets, the work is not going to get done. I don't come by getting arrested easily, but as one of the Medicaid 23 and rested, arrested again since that time, I know that I am willing to go where Jesus calls me to go. And I am confident that Jesus is going to bring that peace that passes all understanding as long as we are following the will of God. There are many people who have influenced me in my life. Rosa Parks is one, Desmond Archbishop, Desmond Tutu is another. The great prophets of the Bible who call us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And I must say our Episcopal prayer book got it wrong. When they went to quote that in our prayer book, they said we are called to love justice and do mercy. And that's true for so many of us. It was true for me that I loved the notion of justice. I loved that. But that is not what we're called to. We are called to do justice. Micah make it, <coughs> makes that clear. And so, as Chani has said, in whatever way God is calling you to step out in faith, we're all needed. We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all called to step up and use whatever gifts God has given us. So whether you're standing with low-wage workers who are fighting for a living wage and the ability to put food on their children's plate, whether you're fighting for health care for all people, whether you're fighting for fair immigration, whatever is the issue you are fighting for, you're needed in this fight. And it is a fight. We're fighting against powers and principalities of darkness that seek to destroy and overwhelm God's children. And what I want us to see, we're mostly white in this room, and what I want us to think about is the strand that th runs through every, all of these injustices are tied together by the fundamental sin of our country. That fundamental original sin is racism. And so I believe as a person of privilege, even when I was arrested, each time I've been arrested, I was keenly aware that my skin is white and that that brings me tremendous privilege. So I'm really delighted to be here tonight and to have this opportunity to think about 
these important issues with you. But we need each and every one of us. Uh, good evening. My name is uh, Eric Garbison, and uh, glad to be here in a community that I care about as well. Um, I live with uh, my wife Jody, who's here somewhere, and Diana, and um, Grace and Ben. Actually, a couple of our community members here. We live in a Catholic worker house in the Northeast neighborhood, uh, and we do hospitality with folks who live, uh, who are experiencing homelessness, various marginalizations. Uh, it's a poorer community. Um, so Sabbath practices. Um, thinking about when I was in seminary, I heard uh, I was when I was in seminary, we had a visiting instructor there who uh, his name was Peter Story. He was a bishop, a United Methodist bishop who was from South Africa and he had served with uh, Desmond Tutu and um, he it was it was only a couple years after apartheid had ended and so it was very fresh in a lot of our conversations and understandings of justice and he told this this really powerful story that that's excuse me that's shaped my understanding of Sabbath and he said that he, when working with Desmond Tutu Desmond Tutu had this practice he apparently had um, had in the back of his yard some kind of um, meditative spot I don't know some kind of little little room where he had established for prayer and um, once a month he disappeared for the whole day to go and spend in that room to pray. And so they would be in the middle of this struggle and this fight. And, and everyone's like, well, where's Desmond Tutu today? Well, he's back at the house. He's praying. He's not coming out. That's what he's doing. And uh, Dr. Story was pretty helpful in just being honest about his own feelings about that. Sometimes feeling frustrated, like, we have something really important to do today. Why, why is he there praying? You know, we have something really substantial to do. Uh, how, who, who of us has the time in this fight to stop to take the moment for silence and for being with God in that way? Because um, obviously he attends worship and all those other things. So I, that story has been really shape, uh, informative for me. And one of the practices, well, two things about the practices that are important to me is one is I live in a community. And so um, we've kind of established over the 10 years we've been together a kind of a commitment to be ex expect Sabbath out of one another and to make space for that to happen, allowing each person to do their own expression of that. Um, and so what we have is we actually have a rotation of Sabbaths, and it's not supposed to be Sunday morning church, and it's not supposed to be on the weekend maybe when you have personal needs you need to take care of. It's supposed to be during the week when you have uh, community obligations uh, that you find someone to fill in for you or find volunteers to help fill your spot at the house and you go and take a day away somewhere. It can't be to uh, um, follow up with loose ends in your personal life or chores or whatever. And again, it's all self-driven, but to go find a space and to do whatever practices help to recenter you, um, whether it's a prayer. I personally find myself spending uh, time in silence. That's the second part of my Sabbath practice that I would say is uh, in the way of life that I live, I find it really essential to, to um, seek out practices that, that um, nurture a kind of countercultural way of life. In other words, the idea of Sabbath itself in the Hebrew tradition just simply means stop, right? Cease. Don't do anything, right? And, um, and how radical is that in this world, Right? To say the most important thing you could do for this world right now and for yourself is to just be done. Um, 
Another one that's important to me is uh, things like um, consumption. You know, we live in a capitalist society that makes consumption almost a virtue. So maybe some Sabbaths I realize just just need to to no part of my time consuming something that I have to purchase or buy or that causes someone else work or that maybe is an injustice to someone else because of the kind of work it requires of them or the little pay that they get. So can I just find that? that. So I try to integrate those because um, I'm trying to nurture in my life a sense of uh, the reality that to live in the kingdom of God does press up against what's around us in the world we live in, right? There is, there is a tension. We are, we are uh, in battle. We really are. Uh, and you, you know that when we're doing these kinds of things. Um, so I do, we, um, I had the opportunity to think a little bit about theology of protest in one of our experiences <clears throat> um, s- several years ago when we first started the Catholic Worker. It was when, um, how many of you thought nuclear weapons was going to be an obsolete issue about 10 years ago, right? Right? And, um, well, it wasn't but about eight or seven years ago that uh, the community of Cherith Brook, that includes many people in this room who are former Cherith Brook community members, um, still Cherith Brook community members. Um, the, the city was planning to refurbish the Bannister Complex, which is and was a, a nuclear weapons parts plant, 85% of non-nuclear parts. So in other words, the guns are built at the old banners complex. The bullets were built somewhere else, right? And they were going to close down that factory, and they were going to build a new one uh, on 150 Highway Bots Road, um, where there was no Air Force Base. And they were going to use city funds. The, the land was actually going to belong to the city. So the first time in history that a group of pe- a citizens of a city could, say, could put a stop to the construction of a nuclear weapons plant because it was going to be rented to the federal government, which it is. That is the whole setup. We actually own the property of this new nuclear weapons plant. Um, anyway, uh, we're part of a broader community of communities of Catholic workers in the Midwest. We meet together a couple times a year, and we do a week. Uh, we do a weekend once a year, what we call um, Faith and Resistance uh, Retreat, uh, where it's out of the Daniel, uh, it's out of the Bergen Brothers tradition. It's where you gather together and through spiritual uh, discernment, prayer, eating together, communing together, you just you decide to address an adju- injustice in in one particular community's area. And we called for the Catholic workers to come to Kansas City to help us in our protest related to the nuclear weapons plant. And um, there's about 35 communities in the Midwest. And and this time we wanted to do something different. We wanted to spend more energy discerning than we often get to do in a short weekend. And we wanted to invite more Christians locally to have the opportunity to experience um, civil disobedience. And we realized that on a weekend, you're not going to call anyone or really have like a radical change of heart. Like, I've never done anything like this before. All of a sudden, in one day, I'm going to decide this is a good idea, right? And that that's not necessarily the healthiest way, as already been suggested. It takes real spiritual discernment. What are your motives? What are you doing this for? And so we, uh, with Holy Family House, the other Catholic worker in the city, we set up a, uh, four meetings of spiritual discernment with, and sending out emails to people if you feel like any way you want to get involved. And we, we talked about, uh, there's a couple of really amazing scripture, right? I mean, lots of people practice civil disobedience in the Bible. Uh, it's just you weren't taught that, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you said in that great little song when you were little, right? Uh, they were practicing civil disobedience. And that's not in the song, but that's exactly what was happening. So one of the, the thing that emerged out of that, the reason I'm telling this story, is because we realized that none of us felt like we were disobeying something by doing what we were doing. Who decided to call this civil disobedience? That puts the state 
and the principalities and powers at the top of the authority chain, right? The top of the pyramid. And we are here because we believe that God is at the top and that all of our other allegiances have to be re redistributed once that we realize what it means to claim Christ as Lord, right? And that that's always takes discernment, but it always has to be true. So we said, well, this is really gospel obedience, right? So from then on out, we stopped calling it civil disobedience, and we said, we're here, this, we're here to proclaim gospel obedience. And it really began to change people's perspectives about what they were doing. Because going back to your point about being predominantly white, middle-class, educated people, some of us in this room, not all of us, but those of us who come from that culture, we are taught that our job is to be good citizens, to never disobey. And it benefits us, so it's reinforced all the time. It's reinforced through our, through our education. It's reinforcing us. So we're even afraid to you know, cross the street when the light is red. You know, when there's no traffic for miles or for hours. We don't do those kinds of things, right? Because that's, not, that's breaking the law, okay? And we want to be good citizens. So, and that's connected to our spirituality. Well, what we need to do is say, well, we, we, don't, we don't think that we just break laws for no reason. But we also realize that we have a higher belief, and that is gospel obedience. And so that's a piece of, my, uh, of our community's history and of our community's theology of protest. Um, I guess I, I want to say one other thing with my time here, and that is um, uh, well, two other things, because I, like I want to I talk a lot. <laughs> No, I don't want to, but I just feel really impassioned tonight. Um, um, if you see the, the poem by Wendell Berry, well, he's, he is one of my sources of Sabbath. Um, he has a whole, um, I got this in 1996 when it first came out, and I've read it probably every other year since then. And it's a book of Sabbath poetry that he's written over the years. I don't think he set out to write a book on Sabbath poetry. I just think that he was a person so deeply connected to Sabbath and the understanding of Sabbath, the biblical understanding, that it just came out of him, and it's kind of been a theme of his, of his writing. Anyway, this one on the second one, after the set of dots there. Um, what is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. We foresee in joy hope, right? We gotta live it out day to day. Vision held open in the dark by our 10,000 days of work. And it feels like that sometimes in just one day that you could do 10,000 days of work. Harvest will fill the barn. For that, the hand must ache. The face must sweat. Activism. And yet, no leaf of grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace. That we may reap, great work is done while we're asleep. When we work well, a Sabbath mood rests on our day and finds it good. One of the biggest temptations of, of activism is to think that we can achieve what we're called to do by all of this labor that we do. When, we, when ultimately as Christians we say, no, we don't even know how it all works out, but we do trust that it's the power of God that is going to transform the situation. There's no cause and effect to all the actions that we do and the end result. There's always this mystery involved, and there's always God's providence and God's grace and connected with that. Um, you've, some of you have probably heard that statement, you know, um, work as if it all depended on you and pray as if it all depends on God. 
I don't remember who said that quote, but it's a, it's a pretty famous one. Work as if everything depends on you and me, and pray as if everything depends entirely on God. Um, so my last little bit um, is that um, the other piece of solidity protest that I want to say is really important is we, we participate in these things because for those of us who don't have connections to people in poverty, to people on the margins, it is one chance for you to be in deeper solidarity with their life. They, jails are for poor people. They are. And um, so just, I want to tell you a brief story, something that just happened to me and Jody, and I just spent a night in jail. And I was not technically doing civil disobedience. In other words, we weren't planning any kind of you know, action for better wages. But I was in the sense that we welcome people into our home who are on the margins. They're poor and they come for shower and clothing, etc. Which is also an act of civil disobedience in this culture, by the way. If you welcome a stranger in your house and that stranger is undocumented, um, that's an act of civil disobedience in this culture today. And it's getting worse, that sense. But anyway, so we have about 75 to 100 people who get their mail at our house. And so that's registered as their address. So if the police are looking for someone, they come to our house because that's the address listed. And in the recent six months, there's been an escalation. Um, that happens, it has happened occasionally over the year. But uh, Thursday night, after a, a long day and celebrating my daughter's birthday, there was a, a knock on the door. And I, I went outside, three police officers. So I stepped outside. They were looking for someone. Didn't know if it was me or whoever. They don't. Unfortunately, they didn't know anything about the house, and I, that became clear pretty quickly. Um, and I said, yes, he gets his mail here, but he's homeless, and he doesn't live here. Uh, we, we are, I'm a pastor, and we offer hospitality in this space, and all folks who are, don't have addresses, a lot of them get their mail here. And I um, was kind of working through that, and then at some point I realized how close they were standing to me. And I realized that there were four other police officers in the parking lot. Now they were asking to see this gentleman because he, he was a witness and they just needed to talk to him. Um, that's what they said initially and then as I stepped back and saw what was happening I'm like are you sure he's just a witness? Like this is doesn't you know if you need to come and talk to somebody about a case you don't usually send out seven plus officers. Um, and then I realized there was a police officer coming from the side of the house. Um, and as I'm it, things happen fairly quickly but all of a sudden my son who was at robotics at, in his high school robotics team pulled into the driveway and they shined a flashlight in his in his um, windshield and they pointed a gun at him and I didn't see the gun but I someone said one of the officers said who was that and I said oh it's my son he's coming from high school you know um, he was at a robotics thing he's just pulling into the driveway um, because I could tell and and then I look again and the officer already has his hand outside the door twisted up over this over the top of the car and I'm like, why is he doing that? What's going on here? You know, and I'm obviously starting to get irate. Jody is upstairs. She sees that the officer has a gun. I think by this point he's put it in his, in his holster because he sees he has a kid. But I asked one of the officers, why is he doing that? And he says, because, you're, because he tried to hit the officer with the car. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So at that point, chaos kind of ensued as far as I'm concerned emotionally and trying to us figure out and not being able to think straight about what's going on. Um, 
We felt the need to go down to the car because he was off in our parking lot and we couldn't really see, I could barely see what the officer was doing because he was on the other side of the car. So we started to walk down that way and they told us not to move. And we just kept walking and they kept commanding us not to move. And we said, why? Why can't you know why? We're going to arrest you. Why would you arrest us? What are we doing wrong? Um, you know, we want to go down there and make sure that he's okay, that you're not doing anything. Um, so one officer said, if you don't, I'll, I'll, if you don't stop, I'm going to throw it down. So he picked up Jody and he slammed her on the ground. Um, and at that point, because they had, char they had said we're going to be arrested, that was it. They can't go back on that. And so both of us were arrested and taken uh, uh, downtown to Cherry Street. And, um, you know, do you bond out, do you not, whatever. The point, we thought we would get TV court. We know a little bit about this process from our experience. Um, well, because they had written such an extreme... Um, thing on the report, the judge told Jody when she went before the TV judge at nine in the morning that she must not, she must think that she knows more than the police officers. And she's not going to, you can get a signature bond, which means you just sign yourself out in the morning and you go home. I'll stop in a minute. Um, and uh, well, we didn't get signature bonds because we know more than the police. And we spent the night, we were there until 10.30 Friday night uh, and got out. So um, pretty worn, pretty tired. But the 24, the positive side of that, and the reason I'm telling the story is, first of all, because we do hospital, that is the reason we got arrested. Not because we misbehaved or I might have yelled at an officer. I know I yelled at an officer. But because the poor get treated differently by, by the powers that be across the board. And because we're in a poor neighborhood, that is what they're expecting to go to. And one of the conversations I have with the author is you would not treat someone else this way. You're behaving like you do in this neighborhood because of the kind of neighborhood that it is. Um, and the other piece is in jail, you see a side to people's lives that you don't see anywhere else. Uh, Hebrews says, um, uh, think of something like, think of those who are in prison as if you were with, their, with them in prison. And he was talking about the martyrs, but the poor are the martyrs of our age and of any age. So solidarity is another reason. It brings a new dimension to your perspective on people's struggles and injustices when you experience that aspect of the powers that be. My uh, heart is um, filled with many things tonight as um, Eric and Jody and their children, their ministry, their family are very important uh, to me personally and uh, to us at St. Mark Church and to our civil rights organization, SCLC, and uh, on behalf of the human family. Uh, Eric and uh, Jody, uh, Diane, all of your family, I'm sorry. And on behalf of uh, the police officers, which violated your humanity and your civil rights and hurt you rather than protect you because you won't get it from them. We're sorry. And we love you. And it hurts. It hurts. And um, 
there's a lot of that kind of hurt in this nation. Uh, so it's a, it's a rough moment uh, for me. Um, I think, though, that these kinds of moments are what um, make you more, make me more sensitive and open to discern the uh, truth uh, and spiritual value of a theology of protest um, because they uh, place before you in such um, clear and oftentimes hostile and life-changing ways um, the um, utter evil that can um, take place in the human families relating to each other within the public and the civic square. Not in the private, but within, not just in the private, but within the public and the civic square. And so, um, for me, I think uh, one of the questions centered around the um, theology of protest, and that emerges um, from within us as we ask the question, God, where are you in such injustice? And one seeks then to try to find uh, the presence of God, the grace of God, uh, the love of God, the action of God uh, within these kinds of uh, instances. Um, my own personal journey, I think, affords me an understanding of my own spiritual formation and Sabbath, I think it begins uh, with uh, me being an unauthorized, unconsecrated, uninvited um, uh, altar boy in the Catholic Church. Um, I grew up Linwood and Benton, Linwood and Prospect. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the um, elementary school across the street from my grandma's house. Uh, the building's still there at Linwood and Benton. It was called Annunciation at that time. It's part of the St. Joseph's Diocese. And um, I went to school first grade, second grade, third grade throughout um, elementary school. And there came a time, uh, we would have mass every day, there came a time when there were no altar boys and I had attended mass and I thought, man, those white shirts and black skirts are cool. <laughs> and there were no altar boys. I actually snuck back into the chambers where the holy garments were and, and the communion and the elements and put on um, a altar boy garment. And I had been watching those altar boys and what they do and listening to the priest 
and I put on the garment. There was no one there. And I went out and I, I held the Bible for the priest. Um, and um, I held uh, the container that, that had the elements and the cup and the, the, the bread. And uh, I helped with putting the elements away and handing the priest his napkin. And, and there was a sense uh, instilled in me early of the sacredness of the church and uh, developed in me a kind of respect for religious practices and worship. Uh, and it was around that same time that um, I knelt in prayer at some point when I wasn't being an unauthorized altar boy. I was just celebrating Mass. And uh, my grandmother was actually with me, and we were in Mass, knelt down and prayed. And I actually had what I understand at 11 or 12 years old, a divine encounter where I felt warm. Um, I started crying profusely while I was kneeling in mass. Um, I believe it to be the presence of the Holy Spirit. And um, it was my first um, a very um, impressionable, deep experience uh, of the divine. Um, that again affirmed for me that God is real um, and uh, that though unseen, invisible, uh, there is a reality transcended beyond us, yet obviously in us or at least who can visit us and comfort us or move us or inspire us or direct us, touch us. Um, I would need that because a couple of years later, at 12 or 13, I watched as police officers uh, came to, at that time, my grandmother's house and arrested my father. Um, he was eventually uh, placed in the penitentiary uh, for um, conspiracy to distribute cocaine and racketeering. And that left me uh, as a, oh, by the way, now I know how I was able to go to the private Catholic school. I never could figure that out because I knew mama and grandma couldn't afford it. At 12 or 13, I remember seeing him handcuffed and carried away. And then in my teen years, uh, in an urban area, that around 1980 or 81 had become um, a part of a very hostile uh, and dangerous area. And this was probably epitomized by uh, a album released by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five around 1980. What you talking about here? <laughs> Nick said he's heard that one before. Please, Nick, you was probably born in 1980, man. Not yet. <laughs> next year, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. 
And it was that kind of uh, self-expression in the middle of uh, social injustices, economic depravity, unemployment, the uh, crack academic, uh, the triple-down Reaganomics that vested economic prosperity for all in the benefits of the top, and, and hopefully that it would trickle down to those of us at the bottom. Uh, the kind of uh, divestment of public and government funds that were undergirding and bringing social programs and investment and grants into poor areas and urban areas. Um, um, the Crips and the Bloods were moving into Kansas City at a, a rate uh, that was alarming from uh, the West Coast and from Chicago. Uh, and the inner city right over here, uh, seven-minute drive away from this church, uh, began to become an area uh, that was more like a war zone than a community. And this then begins to introduce me as a growing young black man now to the flip side of urban life, that there is this God who can visit you and comfort you uh, and touch you and strengthen you and inspire you and that there is also though a family uh, where you can be poor and fatherless uh, and in a single parent home um, and now with no defense and uh, no way to see how you will navigate yourself out of now uh, the economic and social disadvantage. These are forming years, forming experiences uh, that shape both my understanding of God and make me sensitive to the hurt and the pain of people like Jody when police officers body slam her to the ground. And, uh, and so later comes a call to preach the gospel. About 25, maybe 26, 27 years old. And uh, then being exposed to some people who have been through what I've been through. Uh, and so you start to study if you go to a seminary that cares about justice in the streets, uh, you come across a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. Uh, you come across a Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm -hmm. uh, you come across a Mahatma's K. Gandhi. You come across um, a history of racism and apartheid in South America that a jail a man uh, for 27 years named Nelson Mandela. You come across a spiritual leader in his presence, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and you come across these saints who believed um, that our faith must take action in the public square, that our faith must take action not only in private but in public where people are being slammed unjustly to the ground. And where people are hurting and in despair in ways that they don't deserve. And so um, you come into contact with those 
who understand this about the cross, and then I'll be quiet, uh, that there are two bars, that one is vertical, and that there is another that is horizontal. Horizontal. And when Jesus is asked two, two things about love and worship, one is a, a teaching response from Jesus the sage. The other is, uh, is a parable uh, about worship. The first one has to do with what is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The second one is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Whoever is hurting, whoever is afflicted, whoever suffers injustice, whoever is deprived, whoever is abused, whoever is abandoned, whoever is afflicted, whoever is in pain, that's my neighbor. The second one is this. Uh, Jesus instructs when you come to worship before you say your prayers if there is anyone that has ought against you or you have ought against them anyone who's offended anyone whom there's not right relationship anyone that's, that's that if there's brokenness anywhere before you say a prayer to me before you ask me for anything, before you pour out your love to me, leave the altar. Go reconcile with your neighbor. Then come back to me and worship me. So uh, for me, um, when we were deliberating on what action we would take in May of 2014, whether we would engage in civil disobedience in Jefferson City, <laughs> because uh, the Missouri General Assembly just wasn't going to expand Medicaid and was going to allow seven to 800 people to die in the next year because of that health care that would not be afforded for the poor of the poor. I was an advocate that we go there and we disobey the law to draw attention to the issue because according to Henry David Thoreau, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Reinhold Niebuhr, Mahatma K. Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. There is such a thing as an unjust law, which gives us the moral responsibility as people of faith to disobey it. And so those kinds of acts, in a sense, are my Sabbath because they honor that vertical part of the cross where we are to connect and love and defend neighbor. So God bless you.
So the first question that we have is about anger and understanding that uh, many of the injustices, especially, uh, it's been highlighted, especially over this last year. Um, how do you handle anger, th that emotion, when, when it seems like there is no way forward? Well, um, I think with any situation where we're angry, I think the first thing that has to happen for me is to have um, solitude, to be able to just step away. And that may mean, um, you know, stop whatever I'm doing, cut off the phone, cut off the social media outlets, just be me and God. And oftentimes I'm expressing to God how angry I am uh, of having a conversation with God about my anger and why and asking for help in getting through it. And I have found that every time where I have honored that moment where I feel angry in that way, that I end up on my knees and I, um, I use this acronym that actually um, came from some training through Dr. Howard, and that was to push, to pray until something happens, to not get up off that floor and off my knees until I'm in a better state. And it has worked every time. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't go back to a state of anger about the issue, but for that moment, I'm able to at least get beyond that moment and uh, hopefully reflect in different ways and manage it in different ways. I think I would just add that I think it's okay to be angry. I think there's a whole lot going on in our world and in our country and right here in our city that it's all right to be angry about it. It's, it's what you do with your anger. Jesus got angry, right? And so Jesus understands that anger, and yes, we need to pray, and yes, we need to ask God, what in the world do you want me to do with this anger? But I think it is our anger that in part fuels our action, that we're not going to sit by and have a woman body slammed to the ground by a policeman who is overstepping his authority. We're not gonna have a kid in a car with a gun pointed at him who has done nothing but try to drive into his driveway. So I would just say I feel angry a lot of the time because we're not the people that God created us to be and this is not the world that God created it to be. So I think it's a matter of asking God to help us channel that anger into godly constructive ways. I feel like I should say something because I'm the one known in my community as having a short fuse <laughs> and in my family. So, um, and I would not, don't need to repeat what's been said about what are your perspectives on anger, that somehow it's not an emotion that is a good emotion, um, although it can lead to painful things. I will, um, two things I would say would, uh, when I was angry on Thursday night yelling at police officers, 
You know, one of the things I well, when he said, you, you know, you've been yelling at my police officer, I said, yes, and, and being angry is not illegal. It's not. It's not illegal. It may, it may not always be the best approach. I will grant that. It doesn't always de-escalate a situation, and, I'm, um, and I know how valuable that is. Uh, the second thing I will say is that um, people that come into Cherith Brook in the, in the mornings are very angry. I mean, they're hungry. They're thirsty. They haven't showered. They've walked miles to get, you know, maybe a decent meal, hopefully a decent meal. Uh, they're, they're depressed. They're bipolar. They're struggling with addictions. They've been trying to find decent wage. They were divorced, um, lost, you know, uh, job, all these things. They're angry, you know. And so we used to say in the early days at Cherith Brook, you know, check your conflicts at the door. Don't bring your street problems into here. And after a while, we realized that was totally wrong. I mean, Christians are the kind of people that say, no, bring your anger in here and let's see if we can help you through it. And then that's what you needed from Cherith Brook today is not just a meal or a shower or whatever. You needed help transforming that anger into something that's, that's beautiful or that's redemptive. And so now we say, we'll be glad to help you if you have a conflict. Come on in. Let's see if we can talk it through. Well, let's see if we can help you out. I really needed that Thursday night, but I think my anger wasn't wrong just because it was anger. So this will be our final question uh, of the night. And we can take this question in three different ways. So feel free to pick one of these. So the other questions that had come in were all about, again, in a similar way, working through anger, but in very specific uh, context. So we, we are called to love all, both friend and enemy, right? So in that spirit, how, how do you uh, work with those possibly in your congregation uh, as you speak these kinds of things and folks may have a different opinion than you? How, how do you love and push and love and push? So that's one. Uh, area that you can you can respond to. Another one is on the front lines with allies that may not have the same tactics as you. Like for instance, you had the clergy in Charlottesville, and you also had Antifa. The clergy uh, were probably largely devoted to nonviolence, whereas Antifa there there is a sense of violence in self-defense. And then the third area that you could cover is with the oppressor. Good luck. <laughs> well, the, the um, expectation that um, all colleagues and all churches and all of our um, fellow believers uh, would uh, somehow embrace and engage uh, in social action as an expression of their faith is um, uh, unrealistic um, and uh, frankly um, unnecessary. Uh, God has always been able to uh, use uh, a smaller minimal minority um, to uh, effect change uh, for God's uh, own purposes. Um, uh, Jesus uh, himself uh, decided that um, he would not necessarily call uh, 1,200 or even 12,000 to follow him on a daily basis. Um, but just give me 12 right now. Uh, 
Um, and there is something, um, I think, in what we call the prophetic ministry and uh, as ministers and preachers that uh, public and open ministry that uh, speaks forth uh, words uh, of truth and that calls for justice and equity and mercy and compassion and love and provision and brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, that kind of ministry um, is not something that all clergy confess a call to. And so we uh, honor those who might be called to a more priestly ministry or a more pastoral ministry or a more evangelistic ministry, if you will, or even a more apostolic ministry in some of our traditions and um, honor each other's gifts and callings uh, and passions and support each other. And uh, yeah. I would say that um, as a priest and pastor, I think it's important to, for me at least, to preach my understanding of the gospel without worrying about how the listener is going to receive it. I was ordained to be faithful to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was not ordained to be effective. And so my primary responsibility, I believe, is to preach the gospel as I discern its truth in prayer and meditation and reflection. Now, does that mean that I don't care how my parishioners receive the word of God as I interpret it? That does not mean that at all. I want to stay open to dialogue, to have lots of education, educational forums and conversations and, and, and uh, back and forth, but I don't think that means that I can preach a watered-down gospel. And have people left my church because of my stance on particular issues? Absolutely, they have. But if I worry about that, if that is my concern, I'm not, no longer being faithful to the call to which I was ordained. I, I think this is a very difficult, complicated issue for all ministers, priests, pastors. Uh, that tension between being faithful, being prophetic, and um, and preach and being more careful about what they say from the pulpit. I think that's, and I've, you know, I've been ordained a long time. I've been preaching for 22 years, and, and the longer I preach and the longer I stand in that pulpit, the more confident I am that I am only called to be faithful to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about uh, when you're on the front lines and you have the opposition facing you. And I want to share, uh, I was just recently at a persons in ministry retreat uh, for the United Church of Christ, and um, we were just off the heels of what had happened in St. Louis. And mm -hmm. 
one of our um, members was faced with the police with all of their armor, um, you know, a whole line of them. And she was asked to participate in um, not necessarily civil disobedience, but coming to the front line. She was invited to that space. And I'm, she was white, female, who had never uh, really been involved in um, action to that degree. And so you can imagine there is fear. Um, there are all kinds of things going on as to what might happen to her personally, um, what might happen to the people that maybe she is around and with. And so she explains that she gets to the front line and everything, you know, she was feeling strong and feeling, you know, um, that she had been called to do that at that moment. And then someone from the crowd throws a bottle at the police officers mm -hmm. who are all in this armor. And it only took just a second to set off things. To, to you know, it only really takes one. And maybe that wasn't the plan, you know, as when somebody invited her to that particular moment and to to be engaged in the action in a stand. You know, that wasn't part of the plan. And so you always have to think about. You may have uh, a way of things and how they might go, but then somebody else does something to perhaps throw it off. And so I say that because in that moment, she did not feel safe and decided to remove herself from the stand. And I talked with her and just said, you know, I'm not certain that because of the situation and the, the injustice that was done to our brother, that I would be willing to remove myself from the situation, even if the bottle was thrown. And we had this conversation about what it meant to be a, a white female in that moment and feeling as if she did have the choice to make. And of course we always have the choice, but do we really? Um, I, felt, I felt if I might have been in that moment, and I've been in moments before when I don't think I would, when I didn't, make the choice to remove myself from the line uh, because of the, the fight and the injustice. And yet, at the same time, it doesn't take anything away from her witness because she was fearful in that moment. Because she comes with her experience and I came with mine. And so I say that because oftentimes we don't know what's going to happen. And we may have planned everything to go a certain way and there is always something that's not going to go according to plan. And you're left with the decision of what do you do? Do you step out of the line and protect yourself, or do you continue to stand? And I'm certainly not here to tell you to what to do, but what I always think about in those moments where even fear comes into my heart and mind and spirit is that God is in control. And it's discerning what it is that you do in that moment, knowing that God is always in control. I hope you all were as moved as I was by these words, and I, I hope that um, these words move us uh, into a deeper commitment to both reflection and action. 
as we depart from here today. And actually, I want to read, there were some who did not write a question, but they wrote a statement that I think is beautiful and sums up what all of us feel collectively. Thank you for being the people who think every injustice is devastating and worth acting on, whether you know the individuals or not. So thank you.